Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, our guest is Adam Sled. He's a blogger. He writes for The Fix and has his own blog as well. And before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free of charge laylet support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Adam Sled, is with us, and we're going to bring him on right now. Hello, Adam. How are you doing? Good evening, Ken. How are you this evening? I'm great. Well, it's great to have you on the show. I saw, uh, for the fix, you had written a piece that was called Legalized Recovery. And you're making the, the point that, uh, you know, the recovery movement doesn't have to be opposed to drug legalization, uh, doesn't have support drug war. Um, do, do you find that you get a lot of disagreement on that? Well, it varies, Ken. It depends where you look. Um, as you know, the... the uh, Recovery movement is still largely dominated by 12-step thought. Um, And I have noticed in a lot of places that uh, there's been a lot of fear around the recent discussions of legalization of marijuana. Um, I got the newsletter from Gaudenzia in the mail the other day. And for those who don't know, Gaudenzia is a uh, pretty large nonprofit treatment organization out here on the East Coast. Uh, They've been around for a while. They are 12-step based. And uh, it was the front page, you know, listing the the harms of marijuana. And there's been a little bit of alarmism, I think. Uh, And I I think it's unwarranted. So do you think uh, that uh, use will increase or decrease with legalization or stay the same? Well, there are a number of myths about marijuana legalization in particular. This, this is not a new topic. This has been around for a long time. Um, one of the myths is that legalization or decriminalization of marijuana will result in increased access. Uh, now, it's, it's going to be hard to prove this until it actually happens, but I think it's pretty likely that decriminalization will resent result in decreased access. I think it will result in increased regulation. Um, Anyone who has used marijuana knows that it's not very difficult to get. Uh, I would suggest that for an underage person who's not of drinking age, it might be easier to get marijuana than it is to get alcohol. So I think legalization would result in increased regulation, certainly no more access than there already is. But if you eliminate the black market, that's, that's going to do a lot to get it off the street. I mean, think of the last time you saw somebody selling alcohol on the street corner. <laughs> there aren't too many bootleggers around these days. No, it's, it's uh, really reduced. In, uh, in, in Prohibition, you know, when it was illegal and people had to hide it, you know, they would go, they would go to the speakeasy, they'd drink really fast, you know. There was a lot of really fast 
drinking because we was all hit, and a lot of drinking and driving during Prohibition because it was all hit, and it was definitely not a very safe drinking habit. No, not at all. Uh, I think you know the way to encourage responsible usage is to increase awareness and education, not to criminalize. And if you look at the new recovery movement that's out there, uh, and if you watch the anonymous people, which is the, you know, the clarion call for our movement, there's a huge mm-hmm. piece in that movie on on the importance of decriminalization and the failure of the drug war. And I think that these anti-legalization urges that we have are vestiges of that drug war mentality. Uh, and mm-hmm. this is what I allude what I allude to in my blog piece is I think for for us to have true destigmatization and recovery, it really has to be about freedom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're going to yeah. gain any ground by by restricting people. Yeah, I still have not seen that movie yet, so I do have that on my list of things to do. Um, I don't know if is that, is that available streaming anywhere online, or where is it available to see that movie? That movie is now available on Netflix. Oh, it is. It's streaming? Yes. It's on oh, Netflix yes. right now. It hasn't been for a few weeks. Also, you okay. can buy the DVD from Many Faces, One Voice. I think it's $20. Uh, so it is available. They're still doing screenings. You know, to raise funds, but it is available to the general public as well. Okay, I'll have to check my Netflix after the show. Um, so, uh, here's a, here's one of the things that's you know been on my mind a lot, and that is, you know, there's a big movement to uh, you know destigmatize people that have quit using substances. But, uh, you know, people that are currently using substances, whether they're using recreational, recreationally or whether they're using problematically and addictively, you know, there's still a huge amount of stigma on that. And, you know, you, you can't go and tell people, well, I shoot heroin on the weekends. You know, it's, it's, you will be ostracized everywhere. And do we need to get rid of that stigma? Well, I think that's an excellent point, Ken, and it all depends on your perspective. I don't think, first of all, any any one person or group of people can tell other people what's right and wrong. I think one of the biggest problems we have with expanding the paradigm of recovery is that it has been defined as abstinence and some sort of spiritual enlightenment to the exclusion of all other paths to recovery, all other methods of recovery, and all other definitions of recovery. If you look at the the true meaning of the word recovery and and what it really means for somebody's life, um, I I can't quote it verbatim, but there's a really excellent definition of recovery on one of the government websites. I think it's on SAMHSA. And it basically defines recovery as restoring one's life to you know, improved functionality, improved health, improved relationships, all the criteria that you see in the DSM-4 or the DSM-5 used to define addiction. Uh, you know, if you have uh, impairment in a number of these areas, then you, you uh, can be diagnosed with 
addiction. By the same token, if you make improvements in these areas, you can be said to have achieved recovery. Uh, recovery exists on a continuum, on a spectrum. It's not a destination, but a journey, as we say, or not an event, but a, a process. So who is anyone to say to someone, oh, well, you use this substance, so you're not really in recovery? That's ridiculous. And there are more and more people saying this now. Uh, and it, this is not really a new concept. Depending on who you talk to, it still is met with a good deal of resistance. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, to carry that to its logical conclusion, you know, as far as legalization goes, I think we need to be discriminatory, uh, discerning it maybe in which drugs we legalize. We can't just legalize mm -hmm. everything. When you look at the way the DEA uh, classified and scheduled drugs, uh, you know, 40 or 50 years ago, they were scheduled according to their potential for abuse and their, their risk to a person's health. And there are some substances that are extremely risky. There are some substances that are extremely harmful, uh, extremely addictive, and maybe can't or shouldn't be used recreationally. Um, but getting back to marijuana, that drug was deliberately misclassified on that, on that schedule of substances due to cultural reasons. It really had nothing to do with the, the chemical properties of marijuana. Mm -hmm. If you look at the fear campaign uh, that took place in the 1930s in the classic movie uh, Reefer Madness, you know, they, they were fear-mongering around this substance. And it's really interesting to contrast that, by the way, with the uh, grow hemp campaigns in World War II when they wanted materials for the Army. Mm -hmm. Well, so certainly when we're talking... Oh, go ahead. Keep going. Well, I was just going to say that the history around marijuana is just as fascinating as the history around alcohol, really, in this country. Now, certainly, if we're going to look at the drugs, you know, different drugs in terms of how dangerous they are, how addictive, how much damage they cause, you know, the most addictive drug known to man and the one that causes the most death and the most damage, of course, is cigarettes. It's, uh, it's tobacco, which is one of the legal ones. Um, yes. You know, so it's, it's very destructive, but, you know, if you... If, well, if you go to 12-step meetings, you see a lot of people smoking cigarettes in the breaks in between the meetings. Yes, uh, and I am a, a former nicotine user uh, in recovery from, from nicotine, as it were, uh, along with all the other substances, and that was one of the hardest ones, uh, and it remains legal. Now, of course, if you know your history, this country was built on tobacco, practically. Um, mm -hmm. But I always said, even as uh, a former user of marijuana, that really it should be alcohol that is heavily restricted uh, and marijuana should be legal because look at all the damage to people's health, you know, drunk driving, fatalities, violent crime, and other crime all associated with alcohol. And yet it remains legal, not only legal, but, you know, 
culturally sanctioned and advertised. It was only 10 or 15 years ago they had to bar the congressmen and senators from drinking on, on the floor of our halls of legislation while they made our laws. So well, these, these two substances... Definitely. Yeah, well, these two substances are ingrained in our culture. Um, so well, Alcohol is definitely a highly dangerous drug. And, you know, the researchers, the people that research this, uh, objectively, when they classify the drugs in, the, in terms of harm caused worldwide, of course, tobacco is number one, alcohol is number two, and, you know, the rest of the illegal substances don't come anywhere close. Yeah. Well, the other ironic thing is, you know, there's all this fuss over medicinal marijuana when we have an epidemic problem in this country with prescription painkillers. Nobody mm-hmm. made a stink about those. And, you know, that's what's leading to all this heroin addiction, which... You know, you and I deal with on a daily basis in, in our profession. These 19-year-old kids didn't wake up one day and say, oh, I think I'll drive down to Kensington and start shooting heroin into my neck. They started out on pills, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which which were pre- legally prescribed to someone, maybe not them, but, you know, the, the market has been flooded with these synthetic opiates, Mm-hmm. that were produced legally in this country, and yet people are upset about marijuana? It just doesn't make sense, Ken. <laughs> I can agree with that. <laughs> so, and, you know, a lot of people find but, uh, cannabis is a great painkiller and less addictive than the opioid-based painkillers. That's right. And, you know, the pharmaceutical companies have lobbied and campaigned and you know, tried to squash the research to prevent the introduction of marijuana into medicinal uses simply because they can't get rich on it. Now, you know, my goal is not the legalization of marijuana. That's not what I'm uh, here to do. My primary purpose in life is the destigmatization and the promotion of recovery that's my mission um, but to that effect I think it's important that we don't continue to stigmatize recovery by confusing it with the anti-drug message mm-hmm. I want to add one more thing before I go on which is uh, I always add this when I talk about marijuana because I haven't smoked it in decades marijuana gives me depression when I try and smoke it it's no fun I quit decades ago. I'm not promoting legalization because I want to use it. Because I'm not going to use it. I don't. It's a drug I don't like. It doesn't work for me at all. But I know a lot of people that you know they're better. They're way better off with marijuana than alcohol. It's better for them. So you know when I look at the thing objectively, uh, it's ridiculous to have marijuana outlawed. Yeah. And, you know, the other theory out there that you still hear bandied about quite a bit is the gateway drug theory. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, that, our, that if our young people smoke marijuana, if they're exposed to marijuana, that they're going to go on to harder drugs. And the evidence for this is they talk to addicts, 
they talk to people in recovery and they say, oh yeah, it all started with a couple joints and a couple of beers. And this is faulty logic. Mm -hmm. If you only talk to those people and then trace it back to the marijuana, well, yeah, of course they started with that. You know, but mm -hmm. you're only talking to a selected sampling of people. Nobody ever talks to all the people who don't have an addiction problem, you know, who, who use it and put it down. Mm -hmm. So the, yeah, the gateway you, drug theory, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Well, if you trace it back, everybody started by drinking water, so... Right. By that same logic, you could blame a lot of things for drug addiction. But I'll tell you, Ken, I've got a four-year-old son. I'm a person in recovery. So is my wife. My worst fear, the, the thing that keeps me up at night, is the possibility that my son could someday become an addict. If I had to choose one drug for him to use, it would be marijuana. Because I truly believe it's the least, harm, least harmful. Now, obviously, mm -hmm. you know, I, I would rather he didn't use anything. But, mm -hmm. you know, being a realist, I have to assume that he's going to do something. So if I had to choose, that would be my choice. Mm -hmm. Well, I can agree with you there. Um, you know, when you start comparing, when you, when you have the people that have done the objective work, I think David Nutt is one of them who's done a lot of analysis uh, over in Europe. Uh, and, you know, marijuana comes at the, at the bottom of the, you know, at the least harmful. Um, what, let's talk a little bit about what is recovery, though. I mean, I consider myself to be recovered from alcohol addiction. Because, you know, I used to meet the DSM criteria, you know, quite well for alcohol dependence. And I don't anymore. I don't meet any of the criteria. But I haven't stopped drinking. But I drink once a week now and don't get in trouble, don't have any impairments, don't have cravings when I'm, you know, not drinking on my six non-drinking days. You know, I consider myself recovered from the addiction because the criteria are no longer met. But, you know, not everybody would agree with that. Well, there is a discrepancy between the medical diagnosis, the psychiatric diagnosis, and the criteria for addiction that has been propagated by the 12-step world, where there's a huge focus on abstinence. And I, I think <clears throat> I wrote another piece the other day about this paradigm that, that exists. You know, the 12-step philosophy and thinking has infiltrated our thoughts and our, our conceptualization and our the whole paradigm of addiction and recovery and everything is based on this 12-step thought. And so going by the 12-step definition, if you're not abstinent, you're not in recovery. Or if you're not working the steps, you're not in recovery. Or if you don't have a relationship with a higher power, you're not in recovery. 
you can be abstinent, they'll even say. If you go to a meeting and listen to the people, they'll say, you can be abstinent, but if you're not working the steps, you're not practicing a program, you're not truly in recovery. You're just a dry drunk or you're, you know, something else. And so they've, they've completely hijacked the definition of recovery. And depending on who you mm-hmm. talk to, you know, they, they may not even realize where they've gotten these ideas because the, the 12-step thought is so pervasive. It's found its way into the clinical treatment field. It's found its way mm-hmm. into our popular culture, into our, into our media. So, you know, for us to really define recovery and allow the definition of recovery to include as many people as possible. And I'm not saying have such a loose definition that it loses all meaning. It has to mean something. You know, mm-hmm. We're talking for the large part about people who are doing real damage to their lives in one form or another, making really poor decisions and hurting other people as well and hurting our society and our culture as well. And there has to be some sense of recovery from that. There, there has to be something to celebrate Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you can't have the definition be so narrow that it only allows for one method of recovery or, or one path to recovery. It, it can't be dominated by a spiritual philosophy uh, that basically draws its power from a medical and psychiatric diagnosis. I mean... It, if you look back into in the 1950s and 60s, you got this convergence of the huge success of Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, let's be frank. They wouldn't have achieved what they have without a, a good deal of success. And I know a lot of people whose lives have been saved and who, have, who are very successful in their recovery. I don't want anyone to think that I'm a 12-step basher. I belong to a 12-step fellowship that I won't mention due to our traditions. But I also have a very liberal view of recovery. Um, And I I am able to reconcile that, uh, as we say, simply by keeping an open mind and listening to a variety of sources on the topic. Um, But if you look back at history, you've got the convergence of the medical field and Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, You know, the, the popularity and the awareness that that this new method brought to alcoholism spurred a lot of funding and a lot of research and basically allowed for the creation of the disease model, which is still in use today. Uh, And, you know, what they did with alcoholics before that was they threw them into asylums, and it was seen as a moral failing and a a weakness of character. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was a good thing for a while, but I think we've now reached a point where it's time to take this to the next level. You know, we have such a greater understanding now of this disease or phenomenon of addiction, and there's so many more substances to deal with besides just alcohol. And there always were, but we we didn't always talk about them. Uh, You know, the definition of recovery really needs to be expanded away from this kind of tunnel vision model that, that we came away from the middle of the last century with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I, I said in my last blog post, 
it's been 80 years since the last recovery breakthrough. Are we ready for the next one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's that going to be? Well, you know, one thing you see all too often these days, and that is that you see a battle between the harm reduction and the traditional abstinence-based recovery people, which, you know, the, the, the battle shouldn't really exist. I see so many straw men put up there, like harm reduction is against abstinence. Well, nobody that, that promotes harm reduction is against abstinence. They look at abstinence as one way to reduce harm. You know, there's lots of ways to reduce harm. You can be safer. You can use clean needles. You can stop drinking and driving. You can cut back the amount you use. You can quit what's causing you problems. Those are all ways to reduce harm. And, you know, there should not be an opposition between harm reduction and traditional recovery programs. But there's a lot of fighting going on. Yes, yes. Uh, and I agree with you on that, uh, Ken. Uh, part of my education uh, as I, you know, became an, an addiction counselor very recently, uh, I took an elective on harm reduction. Um, because it is controversial, and I, I agree with you. I don't think it should be. Um, it is contrary to the 12-step model. But once you take that 12-step thinking out, all of a sudden it's not as big of a problem anymore. You know, that's, I think that's the major obstacle, is the abstinence-centered school of thought. Not everyone is going to achieve abstinence. Not mm -hmm. everyone wants to achieve abstinence. Not everybody needs to achieve abstinence. You know, it does. It you can't have a, a uniform approach to this. One thing I learned. I'm a former special educator too. And the one thing I learned in the field of education, especially in, in special education, is that the the human race is incredibly diverse. You know, we have diverse abilities diverse cultures, diverse personalities, diverse genetics. The, the, the diversity is huge. It's almost limitless. And I think that same diversity is reflected in addiction and has to be reflected in recovery as well. Mm -hmm. You cannot prescribe the same approach for everyone. And, you know, the, the modern thinking now in addiction treatment is client-centered and actually if you if you do a little research it's not a new concept again you know this goes back at least 20 years it it started I think in psychotherapy I found some client-centered some strength-based approaches uh, there, when there was kind of a little revolution in psychotherapy it carried over into the addiction field but if you're doing a truly client-centered strength-based approach it's almost incompatible with with the TSF or 12-step facilitation model because what the 12 steps say is if you do it right, it'll work, and if it doesn't work, you're not doing it right. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. Rarely have we seen a, peer, a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path, and I can't quote the whole thing directly, but it winds up saying that you know those who are incapable of being of being honest with themselves. You know it, it's it's demeaning in a way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So 
you can't approach recovery from that perspective saying well if if you're unable to recover for whatever reason or if, if you're not being successful in recovery that means you're doing something wrong mm-hmm. I, I've got a yeah. big problem with that yeah you don't find that anywhere else in uh, medicine or psychotherapy or anything you know they say okay well, if you have cancer, if the chemotherapy isn't working, you try the radiation. If the radiation isn't working, you try the surgery. You know, you keep trying different things, different things. You don't say, well, the chemotherapy didn't work. That means you're a bad person and didn't do the chemotherapy right. So go, go away and die. <laughs> <laughs> right. And if the approach doesn't work, you don't keep trying it over and over again and ask the insurance company to pay for it 17 times because maybe this time they'll get it. You try mm-hmm. something different. How many different approaches or treatment modalities do we have? And this There's is going to be the, the... Well, there are and there aren't. I mean, it, I don't think it's easy to find them. I think the treatment industry mm-hmm. is still dominated mm-hmm. by TSF. Um, mm-hmm. It's hard to... It's hard to get support. It's hard to get funding for anything else. There, there are a few things out there. It's starting to grow. Mm-hmm. Uh, my next blog post is going to be on individualization of treatment and individualization mm-hmm. of recovery. You know, because mm-hmm. it's a word that we toss around, and even in our state regulations. You know, the the treatment plan is supposed to be individualized to a person's specific needs. This is something that also carries over from the field of education. You know, we're supposed to have an individualized plan for this person. How individualized is it really if everyone's getting the same cookie-cutter goals and objectives? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how individualized can it be when there's one definition of recovery and, you know, one philosophy that that defines what recovery is for everybody Mm -hmm. I think we have a long way to go before it's truly individualized and and before we really are able to deal with the the huge diversity of people out there everyone has different needs and I Mm -hmm. think from your approach from from a harm reduction perspective you're really getting a lot closer to addressing individual needs. You know, abstinence may be one way to reduce harm, but for some people it might be, as you said, stopping drinking and driving. That's always a good thing. Uh, or drinking less if, if they're able. Some people are able to do that and some people aren't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's very the true. Other, and, uh, you know, and you know there's different there's different substances out there too you know just because you decide you're going to quit heroin if you never had an alcohol problem that doesn't mean you can't be a moderate drinker but uh you know in standard <clears throat> recovery circles you know if you're going to quit heroin they tell you well you have to quit alcohol too that's not going to be the right fit for everybody you know um for me you know i found quitting cigarettes was the best thing with cigarettes I have a cigar now and then. I, I had my first one in two years a while ago, but it wasn't because I was abstaining. I was too busy to smoke. My upper limit's one a week, but, uh, yeah, one a month is more reasonable. But, yeah, cigarettes, 
abstinence is my best path. Alcohol, limiting the number of days I drink is the best path, and especially limit to once a week is the best way for me to go. But, you know, other people find stopping alcohol works best. Um, I also quit television. Television, I deal with, with abstinence. I don't have a television set in my house because I can't deal with it. I watch it all the time. I waste all my time. And I don't even like what I'm watching. So, that for me, the absence is best there. But uh, everybody's different in what habit you know they're going to want to abstain from, what one they're going to want to put limits on. And that's the way to individualize things, I think. Well, and the thing about that, Ken, is that you have been empowered somehow to make these decisions for yourself. And what you've done is you've designed a recovery plan for Ken that works mm-hmm, for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you haven't allowed anyone else to tell you, oh, no, well, you can't do it your way. That's not going to work. Uh, or, well, that's not recovery. You know, you're doing something that works for you. And who mm-hmm, am I to mm-hmm. say that, that you haven't achieved recovery? Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. if, your life is a, if, if your life is a mess and you're out there causing harm, then maybe we can say, yo, you might want to take a look at that, Ken. But, <laughs> you know, <laughs> if, it's, if it's working for you, then it's working for you. Well, you know, we I tried it their way. I did the rehab. I did, the, you know, the 12-step rehab. I tried going to AA meetings afterwards. And, you know, as I've said, I was abstaining when I started uh, going to AA meetings. Uh, after about uh, three or four months, I was drinking a liter of whiskey a day. And, you know, I nearly died from withdrawal. And I said, you know, I can't do it this way. This is not working. I can't hear this powerless stuff anymore. I can't hear this how it works. Alcohol is coming, cutting, baffling, and powerful. But there's one who is all powerful. That one is God. You know, this is just driving me nuts. So I had to, you know, I had to abandon that path because that path was killing me. So I got detoxed, and I found a different path. Yeah. And, you know, the whole idea that you have to quit something completely is a carryover from the temperance movement. You know, again, <laughs> abstinence works for some people. It's best for some people. Uh, I personally am abstinent, but that's because I'm able to do that, and it works for me. Uh, you know, there's also, even within... Um, some 12-step fellowships, there's a huge controversy over maintenance drugs like Suboxone or Subutex, mm-hmm, whether mm-hmm. or not these people are clean or, or in recovery or not. And I don't even like to use the term clean because that also carries stigma uh, with the opposite of it being unclean or dirty. But, mm-hmm. are, you know, are these, people, are these people clean if they're on a maintenance drug? Um, and, again, it goes back to harm reduction, you know. They're not sticking needles in themselves. They're not out there robbing people. They're not walking through dangerous neighborhoods. You know, they're getting a prescription from a doctor, and they're coming to meetings, and they're trying to improve their lives. So who are we to say that these people don't have recovery? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of people on and why should they? are holding down, they're holding down jobs, they're gainfully employed, they're totally functional. You know, they're not high, they're just functional. Yeah, yeah. 
It's uh, it's still very controversial. It is, but it shouldn't be. There's no, there's no, uh, you know. And even when methadone doesn't work, you know, in Switzerland and places like that, they do heroin maintenance treatment. You know, if you can't switch over to methadone, they'll give you a prescription for heroin. They give you a safe place to shoot up under, you know, under a nurse's supervision. And, you know, they, people, you know, crime goes way down. People don't have to steal to support their habit. Um, and, you know, they also find a lot of people, after they've been on heroin maintenance for a while, they will stabilize. They'll get housed. They can maybe get employed. And they decide to stop using heroin. Maybe they go on methadone. Maybe they go to abstinence. But it's a way to stabilize people. Yeah, I think, you know, recovery in one sense is harm reduction. You know, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. as you pointed out, abstinence is one way to do that. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. But it's just one of many. (laughs) You know, one of the great things about having the Internet now is that it makes so many more resources available to people who wouldn't have them otherwise. You know, back in the 1930s, you know, you had to have live groups if you were going to have any groups at all. You had to go out there and organize them and set them up. But, you know, now you can do groups online and you can have people from Australia and China and the United States all talk to each other, and, you know, in the same chat room, the same email group. So it's a great, you know, it's great that the, so, many, so many more things can be made available to people that way than they could, you know, before we had this technological revolution. Yeah, it really is amazing. I, I often wonder what people did, you know, before the world became so small. Uh, and I, I think it's an opportunity, you know. We've got to somehow increase the number of alternatives and make the world of recovery a little bit bigger. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's right for anyone to feel that because I don't subscribe to this particular belief system or philosophy or because I'm I'm not willing to do things a certain way that recovery is not accessible. Mm -hmm. That's that's unacceptable. Mm -hmm. So, you know, once again, I'll make the comparison with education. Education should be accessible to everyone. We, we all agreed on that a long time ago. I think it should be the same with recovery. I think if if our definition of recovery excludes people, then there's something wrong with that. It needs to be looked at. Because mm-hmm. people are dying. The reality is mm-hmm. people are dying. I learned of a, a former client today who who was found dead. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we all know that it happens all the time. Yeah, that should be our first concern, is to keep people alive. And, you know, there are ways to do that. Um, you've got to teach people about Narcan, naloxone, overdose prevention. Don't use opiates alone. 
um, there's a lot of overdose prevention strategies that, you know, people can learn. And if you're fortunate enough to be in New York City in the uh, urban dope shooting group, you actually get this information. It's just so available from the needle exchanges and from your peers that, uh, you know, your chances of survival are actually better than if you are, unfortunately, one of the suburban, one of the suburban kids that got uh, started with the pills and you have no connection with anybody and don't know anything about using opiates safely. Yeah, it's getting better. There's there's more and more awareness. I think I read somewhere that CVS is going to start carrying Narcan. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. More and more police uh, police forces are starting to carry it in their cars and, and get training on how to use it. Uh, there are even grassroots um, groups that are equipping themselves, parents equipping themselves with Narcan. Uh, I know of one... Mm-hmm local uh, grassroots organization called Casey's Cause, which was named for a girl named Casey Rumford who died in 2013 of an overdose, and her father started Casey's Cause. And one of the things that they used to do, and maybe they still do, is they would drive down to uh, a not-so-nice section of Philadelphia to, there's one doctor or clinic down there who would actually provide people with Narcan and these three or four ladies from you know the the rural suburbs of Philadelphia would would drive down into this neighborhood and get this stuff just so that it could be available to save a child's life these these are parents who have lost children Mm -hmm. to overdose and they're willing to do anything they're willing to go anywhere to get these measures just to try to save the, the lives of their children and, and prevent more deaths. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, know, national, recovery. there's a couple national groups that are doing this, too, that I'm going to mention since you brought it up. There's uh, Moms United to End the War on Drugs. You can look them up online. We had them on the show a while back, and they're, de- they're promoting Narcan and uh, also GRASP, uh, Grief Recovery After Substance Passing, who is also promoting distribution of Narcan on a nationwide level, and this parents who had children that died of an overdose. So, I mean, both of these groups, which are parents' groups, are really doing great jobs about promoting Narcan and overdose prevention. Yeah. Uh, you know, recovery is a beautiful romantic idea and you know for those of us who are fortunate enough to have survived um, but the other side of the coin of course is those who have died and you know that's something that you'll hear touted by the people in the 12-step community too they'll say well you know this is too serious to mess around with new experimental ideas you know this is life and death people are dying so we we can't afford to mess around with this dangerous stuff you know harm reduction is dangerous because people are still using and on and on it's all fear-based it really is Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i think it's fear-based and i'm not trying to put anyone down i know i'm going to catch flack for this from some of my friends that hear it but you know in the 12 steps we work to combat fear and to free ourselves from fear. And if we're really going to live that principle, shouldn't this apply to 
all aspects of recovery as well. If we're really going to let go of the fear and open up recovery and advocate for freedom for everyone, you know, there was a time when Alcoholics Anonymous was probably considered experimental and dangerous as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if it, hadn't, if it hadn't been allowed to grow and evolve into what it is now, it never would have been successful. We have so many advantages now with research and science and, and all the things that we've learned as a society and as a culture. There's so much potential for recovery right now. And all we have to do is let go of these old ideas that we're clinging to and, and allow the world of recovery to get a little bit bigger. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're right on the cusp of something really amazing, I think. If we could just open our minds a little bit more. Um, is it risky? Maybe. But I think there's a, a human toll that comes from not changing also. Mm-hmm. You know, well, I our think numbers far increase. More. Go ahead, Ken, go ahead. I think it's far more risky to maintain the status quo. I mean, the, the recovery system that we've built so far, the traditional recovery system, doesn't have that great, uh, you know, numbers, that great results behind it. So we definitely need things to, you know, address all the people, you know, the 90% of people that fall through the cracks that don't fit the traditional system. Yeah, it's hard to get good numbers, but the success rate is pretty low. It's pretty low. It's unacceptable. I know that. Um, I think we can do better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I, I just don't think we're using the full potential of all the resources we have available. And a lot of it is because of this, the, the domination of this old school thought, you know. And these, these are mm-hmm. people with, with great intentions who have been doing this for a long time, and I, I have the utmost respect for everyone who came before us and, and you know, paved the way. Uh, there's been a lot of hard work done, and I, I don't want anyone to think that I'm that I don't have respect for that or that I'm irreverent. Uh, but at the same time, if we're if we're going to advocate for change and if we're going to move towards the future, there has to be some movement. There has to be some struggle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we look elsewhere in medicine. You know, when uh, you know people were doing surgery for cancer, um, they didn't say, well. You can't try radiation treatment because, you know, that's a new idea and we already have surgery, so we're going to stop you from experimenting with radiation treatment. You know, it's not the way science works. Science doesn't work to maintain the status quo. Yeah. Well, if if you come at it from a scientific (laughs) perspective, there's really nothing scientific about uh, a spiritual program. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there, there there has been some benefit shown. I don't think... You know, there's been some pseudoscience, but there's also been some good science. And, it, you know, it does have some merits and some success, but it's certainly not comprehensive. It's certainly not mm-hmm. sufficient to deal with the, the full spectrum of, of the diversity of addiction that, that we have. Mm-hmm. It's one option. Mm-hmm. We exactly. don't have enough other options. Mm-hmm. 
You know, if you ask a lot of people, well, what's the alternative? The a lot of people don't have an answer. I know, I know, I know. They've been taught one thing. You know, if somebody has a problem with drugs or alcohol, you send them to AA. Rehab, twelve-step rehab in AA. That's what you do. That's uh, you know, ask you know, ninety people on the street. You know, ask a hundred people on the street. Ninety-nine will say uh, that's what you do. And you say, well, is that what if that doesn't work? Uh, it's like they don't have anything to say. There are there are alternatives. They're they're growing. Their popularity is growing. Uh, there has been more of a resurgence of, of people questioning the whole thing and and starting to think outside the box. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a slow process, but it it is happening. Mm-hmm. Well, Smart Recovery now has a thousand meetings worldwide, apparently. So uh, that's what Tom Horvath was telling me. So, and you know, there's always online support. Um, that's where Hams is really working right now is with online support because it's something that we can do within our almost non-existent budget. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I have looked at Smart Recovery. You know, it's now there's some research-based stuff. I use a lot of CBT techniques as a counselor too. Um, there's, you know, having uh, criticized the 12 steps a little bit. Let me say something good. You know, there is a lot to be said for the fellowship. There really mm-hmm. is to, to have a group of people that you have something in common with that, that you are in the same room with. You know, the the love in those rooms is just incredible. It it really is based on love. And I, I think if there's one thing that we could export from those rooms and, and carry over, it, w- it would be the love. You know, there, there's a lot to be said for that. That is very powerful stuff. Um, but unfortunately, there's a lot of dogma that comes along with it. Uh, and, and so... Uh, Well, you know, I was fortunate uh, during uh, part of uh, my journey here, I was working for a church. Now, I'm not much, I, I'm a big skeptic about miracles and all that stuff, but I was working for an Episcopal church, and that's a pretty open-minded bunch. So I started participating in that, and that's been a, a huge, excellent social support for me. And the nice thing is that, the, you know, the, the Episcopals in my church, they don't say, you know, they don't, they don't go around asking what you believe and are you saved and all that. They're more likely to say, have some more fried chicken. But, you know, it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I could get behind that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a very loving, dogmatic environment that was really useful for me and, you know, continues to be useful to me because I continue to be involved with that. Yeah, even though, yeah, was Jesus the Son of God? Uh, well, that's not something that I really particularly believe, but that's not, that's not the important part. To me, the important part was actually the message of love your neighbor. So, you know, I can get behind that one. Yeah, I mean, I, I've got to, I've got to give my little plug here. You know, I'm an atheist, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm still able to, I'm still able to work a 12-step program, and I'm, I'm still able to do that, even uh, having these liberal ideas about recovery that I have. So. You know, I'm all about shattering the paradigm. If anyone tells you that, 
you have to think this or you have to believe that or you, you can't, you know, advocate for recovery in this way if you want to work a program or if you want to recover, you can do it any number of different ways, and I'm living proof. You know, the, the one thing I told myself when I began recovery is I'm not going to give up my my right to think. You know, there, there were some voices mm-hmm. out there, and you'll, you'll still hear them, who said, well, your best thinking got you here. You know, mm-hmm. don't mm-hmm. think. Just listen, you know, don't don't think for yourself. And that to me sounded very dangerous. <laughs> so anything that tells me to not not to think for myself. So I you know, I went along with it and as I said there are a lot of benefits. I, I've had a lot of benefit from the program, but at the same time I've always reserved and there's there's that word reservation that you'll hear. <laughs> I've always reserved a little part of my mind to think freely and to think experimentally and to try out different ideas in recovery and to try to learn as much as I can from the harm reduction people, from the uh, smart recovery people, from everybody out there because there are a lot of voices to be heard in recovery. Um, A really good article I read in in Addiction Professional, I'm sorry I don't have my materials in front of me to to properly quote these sources. but it was on the cover of the last issue of Addiction Professional magazine, and the woman writing just basically said that we've got to stop all this feuding between the the different Mm -hmm. schools of thought in treatment if we're going to make any progress into the future. You know, we've got to bury these hatchets. And so I Mm -hmm. I think that's Mm -hmm. the takeaway from all this, you know, and and kind of back to where we began. There's this false dichotomy that exists between abstinence and harm reduction, and it's it's counterproductive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, on that note, we are running out of time, so that's probably a good place to end it. So I want to thank you for being our guest this evening, Adam Sweat. Ken, it was a real pleasure. I can't believe we ate through an hour that quickly, but I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on the show. Okay, thanks for being here, everybody. Come on back next week. We'll have another show for you. I'll see you all then. Night.